0: How will AI shape society and how will society shape AI? I'm Katrina Ingram, host of the AI for Society Dialogues, a podcast that explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. Whether artificial intelligence is embodied in robots or exists within a software system, A key question is how humans will interact with AI. I'm Jeffrey Rockwell, Director of the Kuhl Institute for Advanced Study at the University of Alberta. Attitudes towards AI are complex, and much of how people respond to artificial intelligence depends on their perceptions of whether or not AI is to be trusted, the context in which they encounter AI, and in the case of robots, how the AI looks. Today's guest is Dr. Noah Costello, a behavioral scientist whose expertise and research into psychology and consumer behavior is providing deeper insights into the question of how humans will relate to AI. Here's Dr. Costello with our host, Katrina Ingram. Dr. Costello, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Now, before we dive into your research, I know that you are relatively new to the University of Alberta. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to join the Faculty of Business at the U of A?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm originally from Canada. I grew up in Vancouver. I did my undergrad uh, at University of Toronto in psychology uh, and then went on to do a PhD in marketing and consumer behavior uh, at Columbia University in New York. And then uh, after I finished my PhD, I was applying for faculty jobs and was lucky enough to get a position back in Canada. So I joined um, the faculty of the School of Business here uh, last year in 2019 and have been having a a great time ever since.
0: Oh, wonderful. So it's kind of like a homecoming for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, let's start out with the big picture. One of the broad questions in your research is how our growing awareness of AI in general changes our human treatment of each other, our human relationships. So as we become more aware of AI, how does that impact our relationships with other people?
1: Yeah, so it's a fascinating and and complicated question. Um, So I've done a little bit of research on this. uh, And what we found is that um, if you can make people more aware of uh, robots and AI um, and their increasing role in society, it can make divisions between different groups of humans seem less important or less salient. Um, so, we found that it, you can actually uh, reduce prejudice towards outgroups, so, towards members of different uh, ethnicities or uh, different sexual orientations. Uh, you can reduce prejudice towards these groups um, by making uh, robots or AI seem more salient because it can basically make uh, different groups of humans seem more similar to each other uh, in light of this uh, starker contrast between humans and and AI. Um, But of course, you could also see it going the other way and often uh, what happens is that jobs that are being lost to robots or AI, uh, that job loss is blamed on immigrants or foreigners um, uh even though increasing job loss in, uh, in society is really to blame on automation and AI, uh, you often see politicians trying to shift the blame onto different groups of humans. Uh, so you might sometimes see the opposite effect where uh, increasing the role of AI leads to greater prejudice against outgroups and foreigners.
0: That's super interesting. And, and the hopeful side of me goes, wow, that could be very useful in terms of bringing us all together as humanity If if we kind of, you know... I guess, there, you know, there's always a sense that we need an other. And if the other is actually an AI versus other humans, then perhaps we can have greater social cohesion. I think that's really interesting and hopeful.
1: Yeah, I think that's the optimistic interpretation. It's kind of like uh, the Independence Day scenario, right? You have this otherworldly alien attacker that can somehow unite humanity against us against
0: it. I love that. Speaking of Hollywood, I'm kind of wondering about how people become more aware of AI. Um, do they find? Uh, do you find that it's mostly through media or through Hollywood? Um, is there a sense that some of us are experiencing uh, AI and actually being exposed to the products or services? Um, or how are we becoming aware of AI in general?
1: Yeah, so I think certainly it, it is mostly through uh, media and and Hollywood, like you mentioned. Um, there's an interesting phenomenon in which uh, the definition of AI is, is really uncertain, even among experts, but uh, it always seems to shift as, as AI progresses. So uh, when AI started to beat uh, chess players, chess grandmasters, people, before that happened, people said, oh, an, uh, a computer that could play chess, that would be AI. But after it actually achieved that, people said, oh, that's not really intelligence anymore. That's just computation. So you see this shifting of the definition as AI progresses, um, which makes it hard for people to understand really what is AI or what isn't. Um, So you can think of something as basic as a spam filter on your email, uh, which uses machine learning algorithms and, and machine learning is one of the basic foundations of AI. So you could call that AI, but a lot of people wouldn't sort of intuitively think that way. Um, you can also think of products like Siri on the iPhone or Amazon's Alexa that use natural language processing, another form of AI. Some people might consider that AI. Some people not, might not. Um, so it's tricky in terms of when people uh, have exposure to different products. Do they know it's AI? Do they think it's AI? Um, but when it's really, uh, I think. Th- the largest source, the most important source of people's attitudes uh, about this sort of amorphous technology certainly still is uh, media and, and Hollywood.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And that's a great way to describe it as, as being amorphous because it does seem like the goalposts are, are continually shifting. I want to dig into consumer behavior and talk a bit uh, about AI and consumer behavior. Um, I'm curious to learn more about our relationship with AI in that context. And just given your background and research experience, generally speaking, what have you seen when it comes to consumer attitudes towards AI in general or to AI-enabled products and services?
1: Well, so I've done uh, quite a lot of research on uh people's perceptions of robots in particular, and consumer robots. So there are uh, robots that are intended to interact directly with consumers, either uh, in retail contexts, um, customer service contexts, or even uh, intended to be sold directly to consumers to be used in the home as kind of like a personal assistant kind of situation. Um, And what we see there is that there are two uh, big factors driving people's attitudes. Uh, One is the perceived usefulness of the technology, Um, and one is people's comfort with it. So you can think about it as sort of a a more cognitive uh, reaction, how useful is it, and a more emotional reaction of how comfortable you are. Um, And on both of those factors, it seems like the technology isn't quite there yet. So it seems like the robots that are being used, both in retail and uh, for sale in people's homes, they're not quite offering that usefulness factor. People aren't really sure what exactly it can do for them. Uh, a lack of comfort often. It's like these robots sometimes seem a little creepy. They're trying to be human. Maybe they look a little too human. Um, So you see on both of these factors, there's still major obstacles uh, for trying to improve consumers' attitudes towards these technologies.
0: Very interesting, because we do have this sense that um, robots, um, I'm thinking back to shows like The Jetsons, where we're all going to have robots, and they're going to help us do all our housework and all the things that we don't want to do. So it's really interesting to hear you say that that we're not there yet for a number of different reasons, and I remember um, you had presented on this topic, and you used this term, the uncanny valley, and I'm just wondering if you can kind of unpack that a little bit for us, and and how does that relate to our acceptance or non acceptance of consumer robots?
1: So the uncanny valley was um, a hypothesis proposed, I think about 50 years ago now, by a Japanese roboticist uh, who basically said that as robots start to look more and more human like people's reactions towards them will start to improve up to a certain point at which robots look almost perfectly human, but not quite. And there you'll see this sharp drop off in people's comfort. Um, And he called that the, the valley, the uncanny valley. So they're like uncannily human, almost perfectly human looking, but there's something a little bit off. And that creates a strong sense of discomfort. Uh, And we've seen evidence for that in our own research as well. So some of the most uh, advanced humanoid robots that currently exist, um, most of them do come from Japan. They look really, really human-like, but there's something a little off about their face or their movement. um, And those robots seem to really create a lot of discomfort in people who are observing them or interacting with them
0: interesting It's sort of like we want them to be like us but not exactly like us. They're not too much like us.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> you also mentioned Japan and um, I'm kind of curious about the cultural comparisons between uh, North America and Jap- North American and Japanese consumers um, with respect to robots and kind of our acceptance of robots. Can you um, shed some light on on those findings?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in general, robots are certainly more common in Japan. Um, you see them not only more commonly portrayed in in media and movies and TV shows, um, but also in in everyday life, they're more common to see in restaurants and cafes being used uh, basically as employees in those contexts. And we found in our research that Japanese consumers are a lot more comfortable with robots uh, than Americans. Um, And part of it probably does have to do with just familiarity. You know, they're more common there, people are more familiar. Um, But we also find that there are some more interesting, I think, deeper psychological reasons. Uh, that have to do with uh, Japanese religion and spirituality, which tends to see inanimate objects as having some degree of consciousness or spirit or soul. So, Japanese people are, are more willing to ascribe these very human features uh, to robots, uh, and it seems to make them uh, actually feel more comfortable with them for that reason.
0: Oh, well, that's really interesting, and I, I wouldn't have About that, but of course, um, in kind of like hearing you say it, it makes sense from a cultural context that how we approach things is going to be informed by by that sense of culture. Mm -hmm. Here in Alberta, I don't think many of us have had very much experience at all with robots. When I was thinking about this, one of the few examples that I could think of is a robot called Pepper, um, which is being used by ATB Financial, but it seems to be more in the context of promotional purposes or from a PR perspective than something useful. So I'm just curious, given your findings, what advice would you have for companies who are thinking of either developing or using robots in the context of their business here in Alberta or in North America in general?
1: Yeah, for sure. So yeah, Pepper is the most commonly used uh, consumer-facing robot uh, currently on the market. Um, and we actually have done some research specifically on um, Pepper and, and how consumers react to the use of Pepper. Uh, and what we find actually is that consumers tend to assume that when companies are using robots like Pepper, they're motivated primarily by uh, saving money and um, maximizing profit, these kind of selfish motivations. Uh, And that in turn makes the companies seem like they're not caring as much about the customer experience. Uh, In general, the company is is less focused on improving things for the customer and more focused on improving things for the company itself. Uh, And that can have some negative consequences for consumers' willingness to repatronize that company, to recommend it to other people. But what we find is that Often, there is a motivation for using these technologies that is more um, consumer focused or you could say more pro-social in the sense of trying to uh, really help improve the customer experience by reducing wait times, for example, uh, or increasing personalization uh, when you're looking at maybe digital robots or chatbots. Um, So if companies can express or emphasize this more customer focused motivation for using these uh, automation technologies, that can improve consumers' reactions.
0: Oh, interesting. So companies need to do a better job, perhaps, of communicating their motivation for yeah, for absolutely. using the robot. Yeah, interesting. Yep. Um, and Pepper is super cute. Um, I think we'll we'll try and link up a picture of, of Pepper to this episode for those who haven't seen uh, that particular robot. Um, I quite like Pepper.
1: Yeah, it doesn't quite fall into the uncanny valley yet, for sure.
0: Exactly. <laughs> I'm wondering about the perspective of of robots as colleagues. Um, you you did some work on this, I believe, about the idea of having a robot co-worker and how that might actually benefit human workplace relationships. And you touched on that briefly at the beginning of this episode. I'm wondering if you can maybe dig into that a little bit more for us and tell us more about that study and what you found.
1: Sure. Uh, so I think what you're referring to is some research we've done uh, looking at how employees and students uh, react to the idea of AI in the workplace. And basically, there are two um, narratives that are really common in this uh, this topic. One is that um, AI will just come and take over a lot of jobs from humans, really compete with us for jobs. Um, But the other is that actually AI can be more of a helper uh, and can help us do our jobs more easily, uh, more efficiently. So that paper was looking at when uh, employees and students are more likely to see AI as a helper or a competitor in the workplace.
0: Right. And when, when are they more likely to see AI as either a helper or a competitor?
1: We found that when you just ask people about this question without providing uh, any other details, um, the majority of people actually see AI as more of a helper. So we see about 70% of people saying it's more of a helper. But when you actually tell people about AI's performance abilities, so when you tell them actually this can perform about as well as uh, the best human employees that there are, um, then it starts to be seen as much more of a competitor. Um, So people seem to, I guess you could say, underestimate uh, AI's performance or ability, um, which leads them to be seeing it as more of a helper. But when you correct this misperception and tell them actually it's performing at a really high level, then it's seen as more of a competitor. Um, And in that case, people start to be, uh, you could say, turned off by the idea of working with AI. So if we ask people, um, does the presence of AI in a certain professional field make a job in that field more attractive or less attractive and they know that AI can perform really well, it'll make a job there seem much less attractive. But if you don't mention the performance of AI, people seem to assume it's a helper and they'll say, oh, it makes a job there uh, more attractive.
0: Interesting. And what prompted you to undertake these questions? Why why did you want to know um, how people felt about this? Why do you think that's important?
1: Well, I think this is one of the huge debates uh, around AI's impact on society, which is how it will impact the labor market. Uh, will it destroy more jobs than it creates? Uh, will, there, will the opposite be true? Um, so we wanted to come at it from a slightly different angle, which is how the people actually affected by the technology see it. So you know, if AI uh, is introduced into a field and it encourages a lot more people to enter that field, um, that's going to have a really different impact on the labor market than if AI enters the field and that discourages people from entering that field because they see it as a threat or a competitor. So taking this more psychological approach to saying, okay, the actual employees and students who are being affected by this technology, how do they perceive, perceive it? That can shed some more light on how it's likely to impact the labor market, impact jobs, in a way that uh, economists and others haven't really looked at.
0: And and what are you seeing? Are there certain roles that you think are becoming less relevant as a result of, of people thinking that you know this job has no future, AI is going to take over this role? Um, in some ways, it almost seems to me like that might be a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Yeah, so I mean, that's still the big open question. We're not sure yet. Um, it seems that there are certain types of jobs that are a lot more vulnerable uh, or prone to being completely automated. Um, So jobs that have, you know, repetitive uh, rule-based tasks, uh, you can think about cashiers, for example, and you already see obviously self-checkouts, that's basically the automation of cashier's jobs. Um, Truck drivers is another big one. That's the most common uh, job for American males. um, And that seems to be on the verge of being completely automated. So jobs that can be described by those kinds of repetitive uh, rule-based tasks, I think, are the most at risk. Um, But then you also have parts of of more white-collar jobs that are described by the same kinds of repetitive uh, tasks. So um, parts of medicine even, diagnosing diseases by analyzing um, scans, that's something that can already be done at a very high level by AI. So I think for a lot of jobs, you'll have parts of the job, certain tasks um, that can be automated and will be, um, and others you'll see, I think, much more likely will be completely automated.
0: So, I'm just going to ask you, how worried should we be about this? Um, you know, how valid are these concerns? Um, how real is this? And I, I'm asking you to go out, I guess on a bit on a limb here, but just given the research that you've done in this field, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the job. I think if you have a job, that's easy to explain how you do it in a couple of sentences, um, I would be pretty worried. But if you have a job that has lots of different dimensions to it, uh, things are a little bit different every day, uh, you're probably going to be okay for the time being.
0: And what does this mean for you as a professor? You're training the next generation. Um, How does this impact how you're approaching your work in education? How does it impact the curriculum? And what does it mean for post-secondary institutions in kind of a broader sense?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. I don't think, um, I don't think any of post-secondary educations that I've seen have really started uh, taking that seriously in terms of uh, how should we change the way we're actually training our students. Um, I mean, to some degree, you know, undergraduate education is always about teaching people uh, how to think, right, more than teaching them uh, specifically what to think or specific uh, skills that might be automated. So I think maintaining that general approach um, of being a critical thinker, being able to analyze different forms of evidence and make decisions. Um, I think emphasizing that, uh, continuing to do so is obviously a good idea. In marketing specifically, you're starting to see a lot uh, a lot more AI and machine learning being used in marketing. So introducing more of that uh, into the curriculum, not only in the form of sort of basic digital marketing, but really going beyond that uh, and introducing students to how these technologies are being used in this specific field, I think that would help give students a leg up for sure. Teaching them how to use some of those tools going forward is going to be really important.
0: Right. So so teaching students how to work with AI enabled technologies in, in, in whatever context of, of role they might be taking on. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Sticking with uh, students for a minute, um, I found an article about The Unintended Consequences of Technology, and it featured some work you did with um, Donald Lehman at Columbia University, and it talked about how too much reliance on technology, especially by those who might be considered digital natives, um, has led to a range of new problems. Can you comment on a few of these problems?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So... I think a lot of people are worried about technology addiction. Uh, Obviously, we're all aware of how addictive our phones can be. And there's still a lot of uncertainty about how that's uh, impacting people's lives, and especially uh, children's lives, as brains are still developing. Um, We don't really know uh, how this massive amount of time spent online, on social media, uh, is impacting us impact during our kids. So there needs to be a lot more research done on that question in particular. Um, And beyond that question, I think um, you can also worry about things like the degradation of skills that might start to be automated. So let's say, you know, doctors start to use tools, uh, AI tools that help them automate uh, certain parts of their job like diagnosing diseases. You might start to worry about whether their own abilities as doctors uh, start to become degraded as they're sort of offloading those uh, tasks onto ai and that might start to be a real concern if you know technology has problems maybe you're worried about uh, cyber terrorists trying to interfere with these technologies or maybe the technologies just uh, have glitches once in a while Uh, and in that case the humans need to start uh, taking those roles back um, but if they've already started to offload those tasks to the technology, you might start to worry about, um, their own skills, uh, starting to degrade.
0: Right. It's kind of like we outsourced our thinking on certain items and then we don't know how to do that anymore. And that could be very problematic as one might imagine. Um, yeah, I, well I, I have to ask you, did you watch the social dilemma and do you have any thoughts on it?
1: I, I keep hearing about it. I haven't watched it yet, but I, I'm familiar with most of those concerns and, uh, and uh, the, the Center for Humane Technology, I think it's called, uh, that, that's focused in that film. Uh, so, they, I, yeah, I'm familiar with the issues, and they're certainly important issues.
0: Right. So what about solutions? Uh, the article also mentioned a few things that uh, sounded like possible solutions. I'm wondering if you might share a few of those.
1: So one of the guys featured in that movie, uh, Tristan Harris, he started uh, this movement. Um, I think it's called the Center for Humane Technology, something like that basically advocating for um, the designers of these technologies uh, you know the facebooks and googles of the world um, to design them with more pro-social intentions in mind so instead of just trying to you know make their products as addictive as possible they can design them in such a way that actually helps us interact with these technologies in a healthier way Uh, So some examples could be, you know, sending uh, notifications to your phone in batches, maybe three or four times a day, uh, instead of continuously as they come in. And that could be one example of helping people interact with their technologies in in healthier ways. Um, So thinking about this idea of of more humane uh, design of technology is one approach. Um, Another one that we talked about is... Uh, and the ancient practice of mindfulness Uh, so there's been a really an explosion of research on how mindfulness can benefit people's mental health in the last few years Um, and we think that it can also help people engage more intentionally uh, with technology so even basic forms of mindfulness training we think could go a long way in uh, in that goal
0: Yeah, and those seem like really uh, practical, concrete things that can be done. And it's interesting when you think about mindfulness, because there's also been this wave of mindfulness apps that it's kind of like um, the mindfulness meets technology piece coming together. So that's really interesting. Yeah, Um, absolutely. (laughs) I'm wondering about pulling back, just putting this in the bigger context. What are the questions that you think we should be asking at a societal level when it comes to AI and the automation of work?
1: Uh, Um. So how you can train people uh, in uh, a way that prepares them for uh, both working alongside AI, but also um, maybe retraining people who are already in jobs that are highly at risk. Um, So retraining programs, um, you've also probably heard a lot of people talking about universal basic income and whether that might be um, a feasible solution for people who are uh, sort of the victims of this technological unemployment, if the government can be giving uh, those kinds of people, or maybe even everyone in, in a country, this universal basic income that allows them to uh, you know, survive and get by in a world where they might have a really hard time finding a job. Unfortunately, you don't see a lot of uh, discussion at at high level of of government, at least not in in North America, about these issues. So as important and pressing as they are, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of serious attention being given to it uh, at high level of government.
0: Yeah, when you talk about retraining people, and we talked earlier about uh, the automation of of trucking, for example, I I think Mm -hmm. of the tens of thousands of people, many of whom are mid-career, um, that might need to be retrained, who are, who are driving a, as a career in, in some way. Um, and so that seems like a, a massive undertaking and, and something that we need to, uh, to look at sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Maybe shifting to something a bit more hopeful, what do you think will be the most exciting developments in terms of how AI will shape society from your perspective?
1: Well, one of the areas I'm most excited about uh, are the medical applications. Um, So I mentioned already uh, AI has been shown to uh, diagnose certain types of cancers um, better than any existing human uh, um, oncologist. Uh, And you're starting to see more and more of those exciting applications, um, which is exciting for a few reasons. I mean, obviously, uh, human error is a huge uh, factor in medicine. Uh, a, a really, I think it's the third leading cause of death uh, is, is human error in medicine.
0: Really? Um, wow. Yeah.
1: So if you can start to eliminate that uh, and automate some of these really important medical functions, that could be huge. Um, it could also, I think, help provide um, more equitable access to healthcare, especially in countries where you don't have uh, universal healthcare. Right now, you see uh, a lot of uh, unfortunate inequalities where you have. Ah, uh, the rich able to uh, to purchase essentially higher quality healthcare uh, than the poor, but if you can have um, AI-based uh, diagnosis or prognosis, um, that could be more easily made available uh, to sort of every hospital in the country, kind of situation, um, and make it less uh, of this kind of tiered access. So I think that's another really uh, interesting and exciting aspect of the use of AI in healthcare.
0: Yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, I also want to ask you, just before we wrap up, I I believe you've recently received a Shirk grant. Um, What do you have planned next in terms of your own research?
1: Yeah. um, So actually, we've just started a project looking at uh, whether you can use chatbots to persuade people to get a COVID vaccine. Um, So that's one of the projects we started with the Shirk grant. um, And we have some preliminary results actually showing that these chatbots can do so more effectively than humans. Uh, so that's been really interesting and exciting.
0: That's fantastic and super useful and, and timely, just given uh, the situation that we find ourselves in collectively. Before we wrap up here, I just want to ask you, is there anything else that you want to share about your research? Any further thoughts on on any of the topics that we've covered today?
1: Well, I might actually just ask ask you a question. Maybe we can have a quick discussion about it. But I know you do some uh, some work on the ethics of AI. And there there is obviously... Um, a huge issue with uh, what's what people sometimes call automating bias or, or sort of building bias or prejudice into algorithms into AI. It's a it's a big problem. Uh, people are are working on trying to figure out how to improve that kind of situation. Um, but I'm curious what your take on that is, and uh, and whether you might be able to speak to that issue.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is uh, that was my research question uh, when I did my master's degree, and it's it's a passion of mine for sure. I think it, it is a huge challenge, and we've seen many um, researchers um, who have demonstrated some of those issues uh, in the context of their research, whether that's uh, showing that AI is not working for everyone in the same way and whether that is in ways that are you know racist or sexist or biased in some way, shape or form. Um, I mean, there's a number of different aspects to it, um, having to do with, in some cases, the data that is has been used to train the AI, um, either being insufficient or biased um, in terms of its own labels. Um, so that kind of then leads to the AI itself being biased. But the bigger issue really is around who is developing these solutions and who has a say at what is framed as a problem for the AI to solve and who's weighing in in the context of developing an AI um, system. And you know, the reality is it's a very small, elite group of people. Um, there aren't enough stakeholders at the table that uh, come from diverse perspectives. And that really is a piece that needs to change. And, and that's a larger systemic issue. But I think that's really going to be how we um, how we move forward in ways that benefit everyone and reduce um, the biases that we see in AI is really by bringing more stakeholders to the table.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You're seeing, thankfully, a lot more discussion about that topic in uh, in all fields these days. How do you make the pipeline into these fields more diverse? How do you recruit underrepresented voices uh, into these fields? Such an important question. Glad you're working on it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the I just sat in recently on uh, reviewing a um, a document that AI Global is working on, and and one of the interesting ways that they're looking at doing that, and this kind of harkens back to the marketing uh, side of things, is um, putting in place consumer advocacy groups for different stakeholders. So going out and actually recruiting stakeholder groups to come to the table and be part of that decision making process early on in the process. And I thought that was quite interesting um, in terms of a recommendation. And um, I think something that companies could uh, could learn from and benefit from.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, another interesting angle there is uh, in terms of how government tries to regulate and, and oversee these technologies, and trying to get more diverse voices uh, just into into those regulatory bodies as well. I don't know if you ever see the uh, the Senate uh, committee hearings when uh, Facebook and Amazon and Google come in to testify. Uh, and these senators are often, you know, 70-year-old white men who don't even know the first thing about how, how these really basic uh, technologies work. And you just think, oh, how are they ever going to come up with any kind of coherent regulation around AI or, or robots, let alone Facebook and Google? Um, so that's another, another problem. And same idea, getting more diverse, young, uh, underrepresented voices involved is key.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been fantastic. And I so appreciate your time. Um, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast. I just want to say thank you so much for making time to have this conversation.
1: Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on.
0: AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society, a signature research area at the University of Alberta, and the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies. Find out more about AI for Society at aiforsociety.ca and the Cool Institute at kios.ualberta.ca. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Dr. Scott Smallwood and the Sound Studies Institute for providing recording space. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforSociety.ca. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com.